Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. And we really focus on trying to bring you the most amazing people and books and and philosophies to kind of tickle your mind and, and intuition and challenge you to go find out more about the spirituality that is all around us. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his great intro. He is single-handedly almost preserving Native American storytelling and you should check him out. He's on the internet and experience some of his amazing work. Uh, Today we have a great guest. I'm really excited about this. We're going to be talking about white spirit animals, prophets of change. And the author is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And it portrays these amazing animals as a bridge between the spiritual and the physical worlds, between humans and animals. White spirit animals are calling to us upon our hearts, to the wild, to the sacredness of the wind, the water, and earth, and dream a new world into being to heal our own personal and collective wounds and restore the earth to balance. This book is an in-depth Uh, This book looks in depth at the lessons of the major white spirit animals, the white bear, white lion, white elephant, white wolf, and white buffalo, and explains how to use shamanic dreaming and transspecies telepathy to communicate with these great spiritual teachers, as well as revealing how white spirit animals are calling to humanity to restore balance, respect, reverence, and honor to protect our animal kin, ourselves, and the earth. Zahara Hieronymus is an award-winning radio broadcaster, author, social justice, environmental, and animal activist. She's a pioneer in holistic health care as founder of the Rushcombe, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Rushcombe Mansion Community Health Center in Baltimore, Maryland in 1985. Zoe has been called a visionary and futurist and is 
and as well a transspecies telepath who communicates with animals both wild and domestic. She is well known for her participation in consciousness studies. The spiritual science of self-mastery is described in the Kabbalah and is a broadcasting personality hosting numerous radio shows over the past 30 years, continuing now with her husband, Dr. Bob, to host 21st Century Radio since its founding in 1986. The book is White Spirit Animals, and it has a website all its own, whitespiritanimals.com, and you can find her, zoharaonline.com. I would strongly, strongly recommend this book. I found it fascinating. I found it um, insightful, and it's, it's one of those books that you can tell immediately was spiritually, intuitively sourced so that there is that special energetic that that comes through the words you know lots of people can write very spiritual books and they're very intellectual and they're very they're good but but when something has been spiritually inspired it touches a special chord within you that that resonates in a very magical way don't know a better word than magical and and it just it gives you a greater understanding of your life your companions and and how to to communicate with them and and how to understand that the animal kingdom is is a link for us it's it's not beneath us it's right alongside us and it's something that that we we share with our companions and uh i i get uncomfortable sometimes calling my my companions pets because they're they're a lot more human than a lot of people I know. So anyhow, we're going to dig into this and see where it takes us. Welcome to the show, Zoe. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you, Barbara, for having me. Well, it's 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 one of my favorite topics. Um, I think before um, you you turned me on to um, Gay Bradshaw as well, and I had her on a, a little while ago with talking with bears and. Charlie Russell and and all of the all of the stuff that he did with the bears and I have to tell you it 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 made me more and more and more aware that that these aren't a lower intelligence that you know we're caring for they're they're very spiritual um creatures and and we don't give them the credit that we really should well, Dr. Gay Bradshaw is a remarkable scientist as well as an empath, and her organization in Jacksonville, Argonne, called Karulos, and their website, karulos.org, you know, she, was, she is really one of the pioneers and is the person who introduced post-traumatic stress disorder as an animal experience due to human abuse, and she started with elephants, and her book was called Elephants on the Edge, and when I uh-huh. read that book, um, she really helped me understand, as well as being responsible herself for the entire term and the science now of what's called transspecies psychology, where she found, like others are discovering, is you can't, and of course her interest in part was protecting animals from scientific abuse, experimentation, you know, trauma, um, hunting, killing, uh, when we 
raise animals in captivity for experimentation or as they do in the canned camps of lions in Africa where they raise white lions um, in captivity and then kill them for a price. Um, she was she set out to show that when you look at the actual brain structure and the anatomy of mammals and, and other creatures as well, you cannot say that their brain structure by traumatizing them tells us anything about our brain, but what we do know is that there's very little difference. And uh -huh. so her work really has opened up the scientific model to scrutiny to show that this experimentation and traumatization of animals um, does nothing to elevate nor um, encourage the development in human sciences, and that instead what we're doing is traumatizing not just the animals, but all of the humans who take part in that egregious erosion of sovereignty of an animal. And it's the same thing with the um, group that the non-human the Non-Human Rights Project, where they work to show the God-given autonomy of an animal to live out its life in its proper manner with its family, in its ecosystem, in its location of birth, etc. You know, when I started um, this book, it, I had a pre-book experience with a bonobo named Matata. And I met Matata by interviewing a world-renowned scientist named Sue Rumbell, who ran an, a lab out in Iowa, which has since changed hands, as well as changing direction and, as, and ethics, unfortunately. But she raised her children and her sister's children with a group of bonobos. And Matata was the matriarch of the community. She was the longest-lived bonobo in captivity. And when she passed away on summer solstice a couple years ago, she had been in captivity over 40 years. After oh, I interviewed wow. Sue, well, after I interviewed Dr. Rumbaugh, I had this interesting experience one night at our river home where I did all of my research and writing. And because I'm a telepath and I'm also a psychic and, you know, like everybody else who does these practices, eventually you see things with your waking eyes in the waking moment. It's not a meditation. It's not an out-of-body travel. It's as if you're looking at something as physical as anything physical in the room. There was this big bonobo standing in my bedroom, <laughs> gleefully looking at me. And this was the thing that really got me. She's standing there joyfully inviting me into her heart while she's masturbating. And I have to tell you, as I said in the book, you know, I actually thought this will sound strange to some people. I thought maybe I was hallucinating. So I did some uh -huh. research afterwards, which is what I do. I don't do research before I come into rapport with animals. I only do it after I've met them and talked to them. So it's not to bias my mind or heart with data, with information, um, rather than images and conversation. And she came into my life. And for two years, um, I carried on conversations with Matata at a distance about her daily life, about the lab, about her heartfelt wounds about her children, about her daughter, Pam Benicia, who had died, about her grandson, Tico, who she wanted more. Her son, who she actually took from another bonobo when he was about six months old, was named Kanzi. Kanzi is a world-renowned bonobo that learned how to use computers to communicate through a lexigram symbol system that Dr. Rumbaugh had created. And she did this to just show that bonobos are as intelligent as humans. And, um, 
Matata, though, throughout our conversation, um, told me that humans and bonobos once lived together and even interbred, and that that's how they survived the Ice Age. And after the Ice Age, when things melted and they came down into the valleys, that's when bonobos and humans separated. And when we look at the DNA of a bonobo and a human, I think it's something like 98% the same. So she was telling me scientific fact that I didn't know until after she told me, and then I went to verify. And so I'm telling you this lengthy introduction about how Matata took me into her life and showed me what was possible with any animal, wild, domestic, in captivity, out of captivity. And it opened me up to what became my White Spirit Animal book because she was the first to tell me about the significance of the Ice Age and that the last Ice Age was so um, important to human evolution that that was when, as she said, the sky gods came and killed the big giants on the earth who were destroying human bipedals. And then, of course, you read Graham Hancock and other literature, and, of course, the comet that hit this earth about 12,000 years ago did end the last Ice Age and did create this massive global deluge that we find in all traditions and did create a new humanity. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the more that I, the more that I read, the more that I look into things, the more I begin to, to think that, that there, there's a lot of change, of shift, of, of, of consciousness and focus and, you just just massive changes between you know before the last ice age and then after the last ice age and and I do believe that a lot of the things that we see today that we can't explain are really holdovers from the the previous time you know before before the the ice age hit us and it just it feels to me as though we're looking for answers in places they aren't instead of stretching ourselves into directions that that are, you know, further distant in the past. And, of course, we have no written records, so you can't, all you have to do is go by a feeling. And my feeling is that the culture before the Ice Age was different than the one we have today. It was highly developed, highly sophisticated. Yeah. I mean, you can go into any tradition, it doesn't matter which one, as I did for writing White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change. And in all of these traditions, whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, Zulu, Amerindian, or any others that revere these animals that are white unlike their peers, unlike their families, Uh and these aren't albinos, these have recessive genes from both parents, and it's a very specific gene that um, in bears anyway, it's the same gene that leads to women with red hair and very fair skin. And so it's interesting when you look at some of the Scandinavian mythologies of you seeing these long, red-haired, fair white maidens riding white bears. So what I did when these spirit animals came to me, and it happened in a waking vision, which is how I've written all of my four books, is I have a waking vision. And then I spend four to six years basically reverse engineering what comes to me in a few minutes, and then it takes me thousands of hours <laughs> to figure out <laughs> the whole story. You know, you get the micro, which is holding the macro because everything's holographic, and then you have to go to all the nodal points that make up the matrix, which tells the story in form. If, if, if you were, that's a sort of like a physical description 
of what happens. And so I had a waking vision in 2013 when I was washing the dishes, which I went, oh, that's so zen. How lovely. (laughs) And I look out at this place on our property. We have about 40 acres, most of which is woods. And we have one area that cuts from our little bit of open field back into the big woods, which is the 30 acres of woods. And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I see an image of myself surrounded by, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 white beings, a white buffalo, a white lion, a white elephant, a wolf, a snake, um, a dragon, um, a rat, a mouse, um, anything that was white in the animal kingdom. And I immediately recognized that this large group, it was really humbling. I mean, I was in awe, and I'm standing there doing dishes, having this moment of awe with these spirit beings. And I said to them specifically, why have you come to me, and what can I do for you? And I really asked them, feeling that I was standing before these revered teachers. And this is what I heard them say, we want you to tell our story. And it was a unified request. It wasn't that the bear asked one thing and the elephant another or the wolf another. They all said the same thing. We want you to tell our story. And at first, I was really um, overcome by first that they would select me to help them do this. And B, then I was concerned by how can I do that? What can I do? Am I capable of this journey? Um, Am I really able to do it purely so that it's not my story, not my intellect, not my inferences, but their story? So, you know, I've been an animal communicator since I was a child, and um, it, it developed over the years through practice. When I was six years old, I remember laying on the ground after the rain, looking at the ants and the squirrels and the deer and the dogs that were chasing the deer and thinking, I prayed. I really want to know how to talk to the animals. And so over the decades, I would practice for people finding lost cats, finding lost dogs, and that kind of thing, or talking to wild animals that were injured, and people would bring me dying birds to kind of be guardian over as they passed, that kind of thing. Um, But I decided to try something different in this context with these beings, which was first I knew I couldn't write about all of them. I couldn't write about the whale and the bear, and the white snake, et cetera, et cetera. Though Dawn Bronchi, by the way, has come out with a beautiful new book on snakes and the important legacy of snakes in our culture and our subconscious and in our ritual. Um, so I decided to do something I had never done, which was shamanic dreaming. You know, I've uh-huh. studied enough about shamanic practices. I've interviewed people who actually practice them. I've met shamans in my life who are authentic from indigenous tribes. And what they do is they come into rapport with a person, a place. It could be a tree. It could be a whole ecosystem. It could be a particular animal. And they try to dream with that beingness. So for four years, well, actually for about six months before I committed to doing the book and writing a proposal and going to my beautiful publisher, Bear and Company of Inner Traditions, Um, I practiced dreaming to see if I could actually do this work. And what you do, it's like incubated dreaming, the same way you can talk to deceased loved ones or to animals that you don't, you know, that that are in companionship with you but are ill and you don't know what to do. You basically Uh say to them with love in your heart, I really want to be of service. What can I do for you? Tell me what's important. 
And so I would dream, and I did this with one animal at a time. I focused first on bear for a couple months, then lion, then elephant, then wolf, and then buffalo. And they told me the order, and they told me which animals to include. Originally, I was doing whales and dolphins and all kinds of various ecosystem animals. And they said, no, we want you to stick to the land mammal apex guardians. And so I would dream with them, and then they would share something in the dream. And I'll just give you one little example. Later on in the story, when I was into the throes of writing the book, Lion came to me and said I was working on their chapter, and Lion told me a lot of things and showed me a lot of things. But in one dream, Lion said to me, you know, I had asked, um, what's the one thing we could do to really restore our ecosystem? And that night, Lion showed me to close the ozone hole. That's what Lion said. If humanity really wants to turn this tide around of eco-destruction, close the ozone hole. And then, of course, I did the research, and they showed me some future remedies that I don't quite understand, which deals with these enormous poles that get put into space, and I'm not sure what they do or what's in them, but they showed me a future remedy. And um, so that's kind of what I did throughout the book is I wrote this book in three rounds. You know, authors have very different styles, um, particularly when you're a researcher, which I am. I don't write just about my feelings or my personal experience. In every book I've done, I've wrote two books on the prophetesses of ancient Israel. I wrote a book on all the prophets climbing the tree of life, and I wrote another book based on 30 years of interview work called The Future of Human Consciousness, where I synthesized all these different teachings from the body of the world, the mind of the world, and the soul of the world. Um, but when I write, I write in rounds. First, I try to come up with a basic structure. Then I start kind of, it's almost like a sculptor, which I used to be, of you have an armature, and then you throw clay up on the armature, and then you start crafting it afterwards. So I wrote this book in three rounds. I would go through each animal over a period of months, and then I'd do it again the second year. So it took me four years to do this book of writing in three rounds. Um, and that's how I did it, is I dreamt with each animal, and then they would come impart to me what was so important. Well, you know, it's, it fascinated me. Um, I never had, <clears throat> I had never considered how important they are to the balance of the ecological system. And when, when you got into how each animal, um, their, their, each species, um, you know, were like the elephants and their droppings, and they, you know, they receded things, and they cleared land, and they stomped stuff down with their feet, and and the buffaloes with their feet. I mean, it, they. It never occurred to me that that their existence absolutely not not only preserved the ecology, but but the way that they they lived in the wild was so peaceful so organized so and most of them a matriarchal um you know society that that there are so many lessons that these animals in the animals the these you know i hate to call them animals because they don't they 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 feel more like people to me just with different skins and um they have so much to teach us 
as a group that that what we've done to them is so horrific and and it it's sort of like how you know i I can't imagine somebody taking me out of my environment, putting me in a, a totally different environment and restricting restricting my movements so that i I couldn't do anything that I normally would do and you know dictating what I ate and you know the, I just can't imagine or who to I, breed I, with you know or oh, not yeah. breed at all it's like the bonobos and all of those beings for the most part in multi-species prisons which is what those who are opposed to zoos refer to them as and they really are um yeah in the bonobo case the male bonobos raise the male bonobos and there're no male bonobos in captivity because they're too hard to handle the same thing with other animals they will separate out the males and then they'll just have these female clusters um, who then cannot breed on their own but are artificially inseminated at the desire of the zoo or the program that's working on them in a scientific research center at a university. Um, it's horrific. And when you look at wolves, you know, one thing I want to come back to what you said, that they're all matriarchal societies. I think that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned from white spirit animals in writing this book, Prophets of Change, is that by the end it was clear all but the wolves who are really um, a male and female balance. There's an alpha male and an alpha female, and the pack stays together, male and female, in all that they do. However, in the bear, the lion, the elephant, and the buffalo, the females and the babies really raise um, the, the community. And in the elephant cases, the females will stay in their herd for their lifetime. And after the males are old enough, they're called bulls, after they're about three, they will separate themselves out from the matriarchal herd and go live among the grown male elephants and be raised sort of, you know, they come out and it's like adolescents. And then all of a sudden they go over to the men for the teaching. In, in our cultures, we don't do any of this anymore. And that was what they said is a matriarchy is, is not a social, political structure. It's a it's the way in which the greatest caregiving can be given to a species, and we've lost this. They call it the ethos of care that the matriarchy provides because a mother is a mother is a mother, whether it's an aunt or a sister, you know, or a cousin, as happens in these animal communities. The entire female community, though there is generally one elder, one wise woman in their species, who is in charge and teaches them their their great ways of, in the elephant's case, where to find water, you know, where to where to lay down that's safe, what to do if there are problems, how to nurse, how to give birth, and how to die properly, how to steward an animal that's dying. I mean, they have all these rituals of joy and grief when one of their members dies they grieve for months if not years they revisit the place where the animal died um and in the buffalo it's an extraordinary reality and i encourage people to read this book because what i learned is what you keep saying barbara that the sentient consciousness of our animal companions and they are also our teachers as well as guardians of our planetary systems um, is what allows us to know love and to be mindful 
of the planet that we are in. We're not on it. We're of it. We're all made of the same mm-hmm. carbon molecules. We're all dependent on the sunlight. We're all dependent on the water. We're all dependent on clean air. And that was one of their main directives to me was that we have to take care of each other and we have to take care of the earth. And we all hear this all the time from everybody. And it sounds almost cliche now, like, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. But they mean this in the deepest sense of evolution. And the thing about the white spirit animals I've not yet said is that all of the traditions that honor them believe that they're white coats, whether it's the white bear or the unique white buffalo or a white wolf, and they're very rare, and they have seldom been seen by humans, um, is not only are they reminders of the last ice age, but they only come into human contact when we are in the throes of tremendous change, earth change, and catastrophe. So that's why they're prophets. They come you know, to they're... remind us of change. That's that's what that's that's one thing I really I wanted to ask you because um I live kind of in the woods and I'm on a pond and this last year I had two animals that that decided to make their home on my property and eat all the bird seed. Um one was a white squirrel that was not an albino and the other was a white skunk, not an albino. And um, I, I'm an animal person. Not 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 every species, not every animal, but most animals. <laughs> and I, I, th- there were times where I could be sitting on the deck, and you know the skunk would just walk by me, and I'd say hi, and it would say hi in my head, and and you know it it would saunter on by. It I, it, it never sprayed. It was just. It was here, and and the white squirrel the same way. It, it would it would you know come by my foot to pick something up to eat, and it would sit there and eat it. And I'm wondering, are are these white animals? Is it all white animals that are not albinos that that have that 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 spiritual um, capacity to sort of attune to humans more and and make us wonder. You know, I think the planet would be fabulous and and would be perfect if there were no Homo sapiens here. Well, that may be what comes to pass. I mean, there have been other epics of destruction of total civilizations. It's pretty clear now that's what happened to Mars for whatever reason. Uh It was complete and total annihilation of an entire civilization by some space-faring nuclear disaster, whether it was deliberate or meteoritic or cometary, uh, it's hard to know, but we've seen that in the past in on planet Earth, which, you know, based in what's been found, we've probably been having civilizations for two and a half billion years already. We're not like out just a couple hundred thousand years. So I yeah. think that the white animals, one of the things that they offer us is visibility. So we notice them. So they are like the species prophets. They come before you, you recognize them, they immediately communicate with your heart a sense of love. And why Uh that is, I can't answer that. All I know is that's what happens. The white giraffe, the white crocodiles on my website at whitespiritanimals.com. I try to post some, a lot of people send them to me, of where white animals are showing up and what happens to the community in which this white animal is revered. 
And so in my book, I look at the cultures that have revered the white bear, whether it was the Cherokee or any other tribe, the Ut people, and, and what that means to them as a tribal people and what bear teaching is as an example. So the bear is the medicine healer. And natives will tell you that the bears are the ones that taught them smoke medicine and smudge medicine and what herbs to eat for healing. They would watch what the animals would eat and how they would um, cultivate certain areas and why um, and then follow suit. And the same thing with the buffalo. You know, the, the peoples, the Lakota and the Sioux and others and the Cherokee who have treasured the buffalo and buffalo are brothers. They don't just think of them as something to eat. These are allies in evolution. These are guardians of the plains. It was the buffalo that made the plains vital. It was the buffalo that kept the grasses growing. It's the buffalo that was able to communicate this capacity for love um, and enduring um, togetherness, if you will. You know, each of the animals in the book have a very particular teaching, and what they have to offer is different from each other, but they all recognize among themselves that what they do is essential. You know, so the bear is an example, teaches us to heal the earth and to prepare ahead of time because they hibernate, and they're telling uh-huh. us this. They also, when you think about it, bearing children, what does it mean, bear children? What does it mean to bear witness? And then it's so interesting that in each of these traditions, they point to star systems that they say these animals are related to, whether it's in the constellations or elsewhere. And and the bear is an example, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor and the story of Zeus and the mother and child and the bear den of life. I mean, there's so many amazing stories with each animal. But the elders in these communities that revere, honor, and try to save these species from extinction because they all face extinction, each one of them, um, do so because they say that elders from off-planet came and helped them survive the Ice Age and beforehand and gave them their wisdom knowledge of how to eat, what to eat, how to grow food, you know, how to have technologies that they needed, whether it was the wheel or anything else, fire, that this all came from off-planet elders that these animals are connected to that we're told through the star systems this relativity. Well, I, I find that, that there is such wisdom in animals if, if people take the time to, um, to listen. And, and I, think, I think we, I, I know I, I have seen um, at some point in time we lived communicably with them and could and and telepathy between us was was common that there was right. there there was a, a a link very much like you know way way back they had a group consciousness i i think that the animals were part of it that that there was not this this um fear of them i i had a a, a bear come up on my deck and ate all my bird seed and somebody said well did you blow a whistle did you bang a pan and I said why and they said well to scare it off and I said it wasn't doing anything but eating you know yeah yeah yeah. and it wasn't eating me so I was fine 
So, um, and I got within, I, I mean, I was in the house. It was about five feet away from me on my deck. And, you know, it was it was kind of funny. I kept saying, I kept thinking, oh, if it only would turn a little bit this way, I could get a better picture. And it did. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and I named I named it. It was Teddy, either with a Y or IE, and I wasn't going to get close enough to figure out which. But um, it was very casual. It took the birds by my gazebo in the sun, and it, it, it ate all the bird seed out of five different feeders and then came back the next day, and, and stupidly I had filled the feeders again. So um, that's when I stopped feeding the bears. But that is, that the, is the reality. You know, as their ecosystems are diminished by human development, and destruction of ecosystems for corporate profit or as the result of fires or floods or whatever, um, humans are going to be coming into closer and closer and closer proximity with all wild animals. And they're just trying to survive like we're trying to survive. And, you know, up until about two decades ago, it was very common in the United States for people to go berry picking next, right next to black sun bears. You mean, meaning the bears were sunning. And I've interviewed uh-huh. a number of people who live in the South who have said that, oh, yeah, I remember growing up and Grandma would take us berry picking and the bears would be laying in the sun and we'd just go right next to them and there was never an issue. But things have changed because of this notion um, through academia in particular, which has an industry of animal abuse to basically move all of um, education along. And that's just the unfortunate reality whether it's medicine or the development of products or facial beauty stuff, um, there is an industry of torture and abuse. And then there's the factory farming that we've become very um, acclimated to, that it's okay to torture billions of animals and then eat them and think that, A, what we're eating is good for us, or B, that what we've done is okay. It's not okay because anything harm we cause to another causes harm to the doer. And it's just as you so so shall you weep, reap, whether weep would probably be right, uh, whether right. you're a human, you know, doing it as a career or you're just doing it as a consumer. And so it gives all of us an opportunity um, to be more mindful of the choices we make. And if we do eat chicken from factory farming, to pray over that chicken when you eat it and thank it for giving it your life. And that's what these Native traditions taught us. You know, when they killed a buffalo, there was a great deal of ceremony and worship and gratitude shown to the animal that was killed. And they wouldn't kill the mother like often our hunters do. They go specifically and murder the mothers with the babies watching. The babies are traumatized for the rest of their life. And then they show peculiar habits like the rhinoceros that were running around in Africa raping other animals. Well, all of them had been shown such abuse as children separated from their pride, so I don't know what they're called when they're a group of rhinoceros, that they were having aberrant behavior. And we see this in the human population. Our children that grow up playing violent video games of mass murder, shooting down people in rampages with, you know, supposedly, oh, it's just a video game, actually um, desensitizes the neurology of the human and the brain and the heart and the stomach heart Um, to abuse and then we want to know why we have psychotics who go out and mass murder at concerts or bars 
because a lot of them, whether it was through animal abuse as children or being abused themselves by older people or young people, and then playing these games has cultured people to violence as a natural option for life. And this is antithetical to spirit. It is, and you know, it's it's really you see all of that, and then then you see people who bring um, rescue dogs into prisons to have the prisoners train them, and 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 how how they heal each other, which is amazing. And and you 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 look at the two side by side, and you say, how can the how can those two things coexist? How can the understanding that the love of an animal and and the nurturing of an animal can can you know touch the heart of a hardened criminal and 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 you know both come out of the experience with a very positive result and then on the other hand what we're doing to our children is ridiculous um and and a lot of it is because parents don't want to be parents to their kids they just want to keep them busy so they don't have to communicate with them and they give them these horrific games to play um, I don't understand it. I don't understand what has been. I mean, I I can understand why the white animals are here. I can see that 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 our culture is going through an incredible shift, and and you know I think it's, the coin, so to speak, is still in the air. I don't know which way it's going to land. I don't know if it's going to land on the side where we're we're going to you know, all learn to to work together and and have a better culture, or or if if everybody's going to go crazy for a while and, and, you know, the earth is going to say, well, that's enough of that. I'll just wipe you all out and we'll start again. I mean, I don't Probably know which way it's going. a little bit of all of it. I think a little bit yeah. of oh. all of it. You know, the World Wildlife Fund came out with a 2014 Living Planet report, and they were talking about the earth's wild vertebrae population. That's mammals, birds, reptiles. Um, what am I forgetting, amphibians, fish, that they've declined by 52% between 1970 and 2010. And now we're in what's called the sixth extinction, or what the Maya call the flowering of the sixth sun, that we're losing 27,000 species a year. So they estimate that at this rate of ecosystem collapse, 50% of all Earth species will be extinct in 30 years. So I I kept asking the animal. I cried a lot writing this book. I have to say, this was a bleeding heart. Um, I was so broken by the suffering these animals have experienced in the wild, in captivity, um, at our hands over the last thousands of years, in particular the last 200, um, that it was very difficult for me to to keep my own balance as as a person and so i kept asking our animal elders you know how can we save more life on earth and what they said was we must protect the apex animals of each ecosystem and this is not just oh i love lions i love bears i love elephants i love wolves i love whales i love dolphins it's that each of them are so essential to preserving entire life hierarchies in each locale on the land and the sea. And the message of the white spirit animals and their kin was simple. Save as many of us as you can. Save as many of us as you can. And 
therein was their grand teaching, not just about we need to restore a matriarchal appreciation of life, where the mother and child is the center of our culture and our civilization, but we have to save these apex guardians, all of them, um, if we want to restore balance on this planet. It's not just about global warming. It's not just about stopping the insanity of our dumping of waste and oil into our waters. And this administration is just cruel and, and divisive and reversing so much progress we've made, like the Clean Water Act. It's also about preserving the guardians of our ecosystems. And I believe that this message is the key and that these animals, if preserved, like we saw the wolves, when they stopped murdering the wolves in Yellowstone Park, the rivers changed, the trees grew back. And now, of course, under the, this Trump administration, there's a reversal of this, and there's all kinds of animals that were on the extinction list being taken off, um, that were being protected by some sort of state law that the federal government is now trying to override. Um, we have such destruction as a result of the Trump administration um, that it is disheartening to anybody who has worked like I have since I was 14 and I'm 66 on all of these protective measures. And yet the answer to this problem is not only to vote and to vote for somebody who can win against this monster impulse that so many people share of greed and selfishness and it's what I can get and what I will be and who I am and the will to power versus the will to serve. And that's the bottom line, select candidates who are here with the will to serve, that each of us in our own little communities are profoundly powerful. And if you want your community to be safe from ruination, do something about it, even if it's just a daily prayer. And that's also the thing that the animals and the elders in the communities who revere them have taught me. Prayer is the most powerful, quiet tool humanity has because our intention and our attention shapes matter. Prayer is a tool of salvation. And I don't mean this in a religious sense. I mean this in a heartfelt, truly loving, compassionate, ethical kind of adoration of life. And that does not have to be religious. It just has to be felt genuinely in the heart. Well, yeah, and I think so many people, you know, I see so many people that have uh, companions, pets, and and they don't understand the wealth of love that is there. I I I lost one of I didn't well one of my one of my um, cats passed away two days ago and oh, the I'm night sorry. before well, yeah she well he was wonderful he was an amazing guy and the night before um, the other two cats and I sat vigil with him. And, um, you know, we just yeah. sent love, and we were the, just there, and every now and then one of the other cats would go over and kiss him on the head, and, and he passed the next day. And it was like, you know, and I kept saying to him, you know, come back and let me know you're okay. And I have another cat that passed away a long time ago um, who is still in the house. He walks around. He scares people yeah. every now and then you know, as I told my I told my cleaning lady I had a go a spirit a cat here, and she said, "Yeah, right." And um, about a month later, she came downstairs and said, 
is Smudge a gray cat, all gray? And I said, yeah, that's him. He's usually upstairs. She said, I saw him. He's real. I said, yes, he's a real spirit, yeah. And and so, um, and he's he's around and lots of people have seen him. And so the day after um, Leo passed, um, I was sitting here and, and I suddenly saw him walk by, kind of like, hi, where's my food? And, and, you know, the other two cats were following right behind him. So apparently my cats can see the spirit. <laughs> Animals Probably do see spirit, than I can. for certain. No question. When I told that story about Matata the bonobo and she showed up in front of me when we first met, my white shepherd dog was completely alarmed. Animals see spirits. You can watch them. You can watch their heads sort of look at something, and they're following something that's invisible. And as we sometimes mm-hmm. joke and look out, if it's three of them doing it at the same time. But, you know, it's interesting because cats are lions. They're just be, they're miniature lions. And lions teach us literally about the alchemy of the heart, you know, the emerald gem of the heart. And when you come into rapport with lions and their purpose, they are guardians of the noble heart. And they teach us to see ahead because they're very psychic and they have far distance. And they stay together. And they teach us about Uh this time period of being courageous, being pure in a heart of love. And they also teach us about good leadership. You know, it's interesting. In the Mesopotamian and Babylonian cultures, the queen of heaven is shown holding two lions on a leash. And when you look at the nobility track throughout history, whether it was King Solomon or other kings the lion was always um, associated with power and leadership but it's a certain kind of power and leadership in the example of king solomon solomon understood the language of all the animals meaning he was a telepath he could communicate with every animal it's also said he could communicate with every spirit good and bad um, which is telling us the human capacity to come into rapport with the light you know, and anything that manifests form, whether it's physical form or spirit form in the astral plane or in the causal plane or in the buddhic plane, that we have the capacity to see and come into rapport with it. And that's why King Solomon is such a beautiful example of, of a global citizen who tried to build a society based on divine right order. Yeah, and, well, you, you know, the Chinese also... Um, believe that that cats, um, their purpose is, is one of their purposes is to draw heavy energy from humans. And if you'll notice, uh-huh. that, you know, um, they will they will lay right right on your chest, right across your heart. And um, it, it was amazing. I used to do a <clears throat> I used to do a a meditation group for 17 years, and there were a wow. lot of people that came, and I always. I always watched, I always had three or four or 12 cats, and um, only 12 cats for a little time, that's a lot. Um, But I would always watch because the cats would come in as we started into the meditation. It was a lead meditation. And they would walk around the circle, and they would always pick a person to get up and sit on. And I always knew that the people they were sitting on were going through some emotional difficulty, and that that they were there to, in their own way, pull the energy and give them love. And it it never failed. It never failed. Well, you've read about, you know, the hospital cats who show 
this kind of empathic rapport with humans when they go into the room of somebody who will soon pass on into the spirit world. And uh-huh. um, they have, and there have been many stories about that. Oh yeah, no, it's it's really it's phenomenal. I when people come here to the house for a reading, I always sit with them for a little while before we actually get going. And basically, what I'm doing is I'm giving my cats a chance to to check them out. And if my cats don't turn up, I find an excuse to send the person on. I I literally cat scan my people before I do readings with them. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, the cats will walk around. And and it's it's it, it, I didn't do it once, and I ended up with a migraine for three days. So wow. I pay very close attention to where people are emotionally when they come. I mean, if, if they're hurting or upset or whether that you know the cats will still come around, but if there's something really toxic going on in the person, if the cats will not will not be seen, it'll be like nobody lives here. So um, well, that's why I like I animals. They're so uncomplicated. You know, they're they're directly astral. They're perfected astral beings. Let's put it that way. In um, oh, yeah. Kabbalistic in Kabbalistic teachings, it said we have a divine soul which connects us to the Creator at all times and is perfect, and we have an animal soul which is the soul within our body that allows us to eat and breathe and sleep and um, mate and live physical life and that the animals are actually teaching us self-refinement. And if we want to learn a wisdom teaching, you just need to watch the animals. Um, And in esoteric Judaism, there are many stories about the animals being the teachers to the humans. And, And that's how it is in the White Spirit Animal book. You know, all of the cultures that revere them, again, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Amur Indian, etc., Share with these animals as shamanic partners in ritual and healing, meaning they're human allies, and they're revered. Their presence is revered, and they all point to off-planet elders, which I mentioned, from places like Sirius, Pleiades, Alcyon, Lyra, as some of the ancient teachers' origins who helped humanity survive past Earth changes. So I think that the rearrival now and the awareness that's starting to happen about white spirit animals or animals that are white and aren't albino, though they probably have a role as well, um, is to remind us that cataclysm is upon us. We are in it. It's not like, oh, what will happen in the future? It's happening. And we are Uh all asked to improve the life around us, and as you point out, and the life within us, because Hermetics teaches us as within, so without. So our inner life is really important to the outer world we create. And as the Buddhists will always teach, the inner environment reflects what will be in the outer environment and vice versa. So if we want to see a clean stream in our neighborhood, we need to go pick up the paper and we need to clean up the garbage from our emotions. The the the, the blinders that allows one human to say it's okay to pour toxic waste into the rivers is a blinder on the heart because they have no sense of connectedness to either themselves, their own families, to the earth, to the people that will suffer now and in the great future. Um, so it's, it's about love. And, and I don't mean romantic love. I mean this sensibility of connectedness. And I think that's what's changing. I think we've had, you know, almost 60 years now of, quote, unquote, the new age, 
where people have studied and done self-development, and the time period now is for real deliberate service. And that's also what the animals and the hermetic tradition teaches us. Service is the key to being human. That's why we incarnate. We don't just incarnate to learn our personal lessons for the welfare of the whole's evolution. We also incarnate to be of service wherever we stand. And as I mentioned, people will sometimes say, well, I don't have the stamina. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the opportunity. I have to work. I have to take care of my family. I'm handicapped. I'm this, I'm that. Pray. Pray for the benefit of your neighbor. When you see somebody suffering in the grocery store, speak a kind word. When somebody looks lost emotionally at the bus stand where you're standing, just be kind. These little things that we can do for each other are profound additions to the ecology of spirit. So love enhances the ecology of spirit. Good work enhances the physical ecology of the earth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Charlie Charlie Russell also, um, he fascinated me in that, that he he didn't, he tried to understand the bears as a bear. He tried to understand their purpose. He he took the time. I, I think that's one of the things that so many of us just um don't give don't give ourselves or our neighbors or, or our lives the time to really understand and to really listen and and to listen to the sounds of nature, to listen to to what's going on within not, not only our lives but those of the people around us. And I, I think he, he watched and he perceived and he, he knew the bears and he understood where they were coming from and what their purpose was and, what the, you know, and, and their traditions, whatever, whatever they were. And I think we have become so subliminal that that we haven't reached to that part inside of us that that will be able that enables us to blend with other energies that we're close to and and you're absolutely right you know those 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 kindnesses that that happen you know just just because you want to you you, you want to share energy and you want to give something um of love to to other people and and I I I think that that Somehow that's been taken out of our education, and I'm, I'm so hopeful that it will it will slowly work its way back in because otherwise we're we're going to end up with more wars and more killing, and and that that will definitely take us down the wrong path. The, well, the I think earth changes love. are actually the silver lining, as it will bring humanity together. I've always felt that, and when I said it 30 years ago, people thought I was a little. A little out there, a little crazy to be saying Earth Changes has a really good side of it, which I do believe will bring humanity together. Because, you know, after these amazing hurricanes that happened in Texas a few years ago, the communities that did well and bounced back very quickly were communities uh-huh. in which they already had CSAs, community-supported agriculture, in which they had co-ops, in which they had, you know, group works, community works to bring themselves together. And that's why local economies versus a global economy is essential for this transition on our planet. 
in order for a community to be resilient, you have to have your own food, your own distribution, your own sheltering, your own emergency systems. You can't be dependent on the national government or international affairs or international shipping or even national shipping. We really have to restore our local communities' economies. And there's a group actually in Australia out of the U.K., run by Helena Norberg-Hodge, who does a beautiful job of explaining why these transnational economies are destroying the local communities. And local community, no matter where you live, is essential to resilience during this time period and the future. So if you live somewhere, really support your local farmers, support your local CSA, support the soup kitchen, support any system in which the local businesses can be um, supported and developed and networked. That's really vital. Well, absolutely. I, isn't there a community in, in in Canada where they have gone to this, where they they um, they are u- utilizing um, sun power for their electricity? They're 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 beca- they're going off the grid, so to speak, and they're yeah. they're sharing, and and it's um, it's working beautifully. I would I would love to see it. Um, <clears throat> incorporated in in many different areas where there's the barter system more than the money system. Yeah. Um, I I drove across country about eight eight years ago, maybe six eight years ago, and um, you know this this is a huge country and there's lots and lots of space there, and for us to be over overcrowded and overwhelmed to the to the point where people are living in the streets is ridiculous because we have room for all these people that are homeless and and let's teach them how to you know our whole philosophy our whole culture is going down the tubes here well again as as and, the animals made it very simple to understand we've lost our ethos of care and an ethos of care naturally blooms from a matriarchy and that doesn't mean women are in power and they boss men around it's that that women and children are treated as the center of the culture and the civilization, where the mother and her offspring are the center around which the entire culture revolves in solidarity. And this is what we've lost among humanity. In under patriarchy, we have moved from the power to serve to the power, I mean, from the will to serve to the will to power. And this is what has taken us off course as a society, um, no matter where on the planet we live. But most humans um, have the capacity to do what's right. It's that the economy makes it very difficult for the rightness to be honored. And that's wherein some of these major discussions have to take place in each state or in each nation itself um, for some autonomous decision-making. And it looks like political mayhem at first, but in the long run, it's really important. You know, I keep hoping for these revival of communes all across the country. There's a good reason for them. And if we are going to face earth changes all around the world, we are going to need people who have already practiced living together with um, group decision-making that does not rely on power brokers, um, moneyed lobbyists, corporations, um, or individuals, you know, being responsible for the decision-making of everyone, you know, vaccines we won't, we don't really need to talk about, but I am so opposed to what's happening in this country to our children because we are literally destroying their health 
and their brains uh-huh. with this um, maximum vaccination schedule that is the we're the only nation in the world that does this. You know, it used to be in 1977, there were like 16 vaccines for seven different uh, viruses. Today, a child will be vaccinated between the age of one and six with 50 shots. By the time they are 18, they will have had 70 shots for 17 viruses. And now they're adding the flu vaccine in, and I'm sure the elder predicament of Alzheimer's and dementia has something to do with the flu shot because all of these vaccines create inflammation in the body. And for many people, yeah. depending on their DNA and genetic infrastructure, infrastructure, the inflammation never resolves. So you'll have learning attention deficit disorder. You'll have autism. used to be there was one in 10,000 children in 77 with autism. Today it's one in four So the violence of the medical mandatory vaccination program, we are now doing to the children what we have done to our animals, experiment on them for profit. This is so aberrant to my way of looking at the world. Show me the science that it makes sense. Okay, maybe a few vaccines for a few viruses, but this notion that every year you get a Russian roulette flu shot, which can be 3% effective, 50% effective, not effective at all because it's not the flu that arrived in that community. I mean, this is Uh craziness. Well, it isn't just the children. It's the military they're experimenting on, too. Well, and people in the hospitals, um, the nurses have finally stood up and said, we're not getting a flu shot. We're not vaccinating uh, because they're the ones that take care of all these damaged children. You know, when people say, oh, there's no problem with it, the vaccine injury, (coughs) excuse me, fund has paid out $4 billion to families whose children were either neurologically damaged or died. And what happened in a Supreme Court ruling back in, I think it was 2011, they shifted the damage payment from away from children and families to adults damaged by flu shots. And for people who are interested in getting information and making better informed decisions about their sovereignty, their bodily integrity, go to nvic.org. That's the National Vaccine Information Center. They've been around since 1984 oldest website in the country they started the same year the cdc started theirs everything on their website is scientifically and medically backed by scientific studies and the lack thereof nvic.org and if you you know want to at least delay vaccines like japan does till child is two but this notion of giving these babies vaccines who have no autoimmunity developed yet is literally insanity I mean, there is no medical um, way to show that this is beneficial to a child, to a no, baby. not at all. I'm sorry to sideline on that stuff, but it oh, no, just that's shows okay. us I, how far we've I, gone no, I, away from uh, balance. Well, no, I totally agree with you, and and uh, you know, I have um, not gotten a. Fl- I used to. I taught school for 25 years. I never got a flu shot. Um, and I never got the flu either. So um, I, I don't trust the government as far as that stuff goes because they don't I, – I, I just – our bodies should be left alone and our bodies would do just fine. 
But, or, uh, or we could have wholesome food and wholesome air and not plastics in the water. And, you know, we're killing ourselves by our corporatism and our notion of consumerism rather than balanced living. And I don't think there's anybody who could disagree with that. Oh no! I mean, if you look at um, if you look at the places where they have the the um, the longest living people, I mean, it's always in places where you know there's very little industry, there's very little of the GMOs, and 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 you know the 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 food is natural and organic, and people are happily alive for 120 years or so. I mean, the body was meant to go 120 years. Exactly. It's just all the exactly. It's, it's it's all the stuff that we do to it that takes it takes away from it. So well, we're poisoning ourselves. Um, I rem I remember Dr. Peter Bregan and Harris Coulter and Barbara Lowe Fisher, who runs and founded the National Vaccine Information Center, um, and pediatricians that I used to interview would say we're trading in childhood diseases for lifelong chronic illness, asthma, eczema, diabetes. All of these things have risen right alongside with the vaccine increases. I mean, if you laid two charts out with the rise in childhood diseases and now they have toddler uh -huh. anxiety, I mean, all of these are from an overstimulation of the nervous system through the vaccines because they can get what's called brainstem encephalopathy after a vaccine. They call it cerebral screaming, where the babies will cry and cry and cry 24 to 48 hours because the brainstem is inflamed. And it doesn't uh -huh. always resolve itself in each child, which is why a child will seem fine maybe at first and then all of a sudden have a neurological reversal and all of a sudden they could walk, but now they can't. Um, it's, it's just tragedy. I, it's so heartbreaking. But back to the white spirit animals. They are, oh, beautiful, yeah. <laughs> they are beautiful teachers of revering the young, of stewarding the young, of the mothers being revered, of the mothers being protected, of the mother and the child being protected by the males. That's the purpose in all of these apex animals, whether it's the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf or the buffalo, the males protect the herd. That's their job. They protect the mother and the child. We don't have this in the human culture. We have predation by many males on women and children, and we see this in the uh -huh. human trafficking, which came up when I was writing this book of how devastating it really is around the world. And, um, you know, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer here, as some people who know me have referred to me <laughs> as. It's just to come to grips with the stark reality that we have created. These things have not been done to us. We as a humanity have done this to ourselves and to those around us. And I think the wolf, you know, one of my experiences with the wolf um, showed me that they are guardians of the threshold, the threshold between life and death, and, and uh -huh. that they have a purpose. So that all of this killing of wolves all over the West by men and boys as if it's some sort of sport, and it can't be sport, it's premeditated murder, and it should be called that and treated for what it is. It is pre Hunting is premeditated murder. Unless you have to hunt in order to eat to survive, and you pray over the animals, and you thank them for giving them your life, as the native cultures still do when needed, um, the wolf teaches us that this transition between life and death is a very thin line, um, and, and that depending on the cause of death, if there's injury done because of a human action, that's a significant karmic load. So 
the wolf is really this magical being. You know, I had these great dreams about wolf over a period of days where they were running around underground, and I had to follow them. And at one point I thought maybe it was the underground kivas, and then I thought, well, maybe it's just their own underground dens. And then I realized what they were doing was they were taking me into the ancient Egyptian tombs before they were painted. And I'll make the oh, story wow. short. What I discovered was, you know, Anubis, who's the guardian of the dead in, in Egyptian tradition, has always been referred to as a jackal, you know, as a high-pointed ears black jackal, because the jackals did hunt in the graveyards to eat. But what Wolf showed me is that, no, it's not a jackal, it's a wolf. And this was over a really long series of dreams and elaborate, you know, my trying to piece it all together. What was so interesting about it, though, after they showed me that they are the guardians of the threshold, not the jackal, not Anubis as a dog, but a wolf, um, was that they showed me that the way in which they... um, brought Egyptians to an awareness of the afterlife and before life was because of their practices. And I came across this scientific article, like, I don't know, about a month after I had these dreams, because I do research my dreams, and it showed that the DNA of Anubis, meaning of, of those beings that they thought were jackals, were actually gray wolves. So even now the scientific literature proves that what wolves were telling me is so, that the wolf is the guardian of the threshold. So if we want to preserve that fine line between life and death and the guardians who help us as we cross over who are wolves, it's very important that we pay attention to preserving their ecosystem and their lives and stop this reckless, unnecessary hunting of them. I don't understand the purpose of recreational hunting. Never have. Um, to me, it, it it is senseless, and um, you know, and, or fishing and then mounting the fish on a, on the wall and saying, you know, I did that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I I think one of the white um, white spirit animals that that fascinated me were the elephants. They are possibly the noblest. I mean, they're all noble, but there's just something about the elephants that is so gentle yet so big. And, and it, it's almost like here's the message, you know, be kind, be gentle, be, be loving, be compassionate and share. And, and what we have done to them, the, the fact that, that we can still get compassion from them is mind-boggling. I mean, they don't hold grudges. They they, do remember, uh, though. They do remember. They they have been known to throw a circus trainer across the yard who has abused their young ones. Um, They, you know, they have an eighty-year lifespan. They're weaned at four years. The males leave around nine to twelve to go mate, and the females stay for life. There used to be three hundred fifty elephant species. There are now only two. What the elephants really do teach us, and they're revered by the Buddhists, and Buddha himself was said to have been an elephant in the life before he became the Buddha. And, in fact, there's Uh a teaching about his Buddha look. He would look over his shoulder to look at things behind him rather than turning around. Uh And um, 
no, I'm sorry, it's the wrong way. He would way turn around. around, totally around, to look at something rather than looking over his shoulder as humans do, because elephants will turn all the way around. But there was a really yeah. wonderful experience I had when I was dreaming with elephants. For two nights in a row or three nights in a row, I kept seeing this man's face. And I knew he was familiar to me, but I couldn't figure out who he was. And finally it dawned on me that it was Charlie Rose, two of them, and Senator John <laughs> Warner. And I used to be oh, a wow. political broadcaster and a political whistleblower, so I was familiar with Charlie Rose as a wonderful interviewer and Senator John Warner when he was chairman of Foreign Relations, I think it was. Um, so I was familiar with what they both looked like, and I was, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out, well, maybe this has nothing to do with elephants. Maybe it's about some part of my life when I was younger and did this political work. But then I decided to do some research about it, and I did. I just Googled Charlie Rose and elephant, and I Googled Senator John Warner and elephant. So I had been having these dreams and coming across um, television shows like a BBC show um, whose main character's name was Jewel. And then I'd have an, I went and saw another TV show, and it was about India and their reverence for the white animals and the jewel in the crown. All right, so to put this all together, so Charlie Rose, it turns out, had done a series with um, elephant emancipators talking about how important it is to stop killing them and torturing them and destroying their herds and hacking their tusks off and, and just butchering them. It's just extraordinarily cruel and unbelievable what we do um, for a profit. And then Senator John Warner, I discovered, when he went to his alma mater, Washington Lee, one year, when they were having a mock Republican convention, somebody brought in, because their symbol, logo, is an elephant, brought in a circus elephant named Jewel to the actual convention. And I have a picture of it in my book of Senator John Warner holding the trunk of this elephant named Jewel. Now, what was so interesting was while I was writing the book, several things happened to each animal species it, while I was writing their chapter, kind of like this um, synchronicity of value and meaning. There was an elephant in the Arkansas Zoo who had at once been part of the Barnum & Bailey Feld Company Zoo, and it got euthanized while I was writing the book. And what was this animal's name? Jewel. And what was the name of the animal that had been in the Barnum Circus? Jewel. And what was the name of the elephant that Senator John Warner had been with? Jewel, which I believe came from the circus, though I couldn't, you know, um, I couldn't clarify that. I couldn't validate it with historical writings. But I believe what was happening was there was this synchronistic story about the elephant being the jewel in the animal kingdom's crown. They teach us the most compassionate action, clear-mindedness. They teach us about community, young and old. They never leave anybody behind. Even their elders that are crippled, they wait for. The matriarch uh -huh. teaches them their, you know, the paths to water, their paths to food, their old lineages, their histories. They do have histories. All these animals do have cultural history, and they do remember it. They don't forget it. And they do have elder circles. Like with Matata, she had to get permission from, as she called it, the uh, Matata, the bonobo I've worked with for a number of years, that she had to get permission from those not here now to tell me some of the bonobo secrets. 
about the breeding with humans and the meteorites that came and killed off the giants that were killing them and the bipedal sapiens. Um, and the same thing with the elephants. The, so the story of Charlie Rose and Senator John Warner, the elephants were telling me that the kindest act we do, no matter how small, is remembered by the universe. Any good gesture, whether it's picking a frog up off the road so it doesn't get squished or seeing a turtle as you drive down the road, rather than leaving it there, take it to the other side of the road it was going so it doesn't get run over, to the birds that need food, to, the, to your neighbor who needs help getting her groceries up her back steps. Whatever it is, every gesture of kindness, no matter how small it may seem to us, is revered by universal awareness, universal consciousness, by the collective whole. And Elephant teaches us, and the Buddhists revere them for this reason. They even talk about the great elders who had the mind of a white elephant, who were so calm. The calm mind is the white elephant, and the disturbed mind, the gray elephant. Um, and they, they made this separation for a purpose, which was to remind us that they're unique, that they're rare, and that the same thing with humans. When we meet somebody who is compassionate and loving, doesn't matter who they are, what race they are, what religion they are, there is an opportunity for us to model some of our own behavior after theirs. And that's why it's important to become self-mastered. It's not to become known as a great human teacher. It's not to be on YouTube and have millions of followers. It's that so that no matter where we go, no matter who we touch, no matter what we say or do, that we've done our best at being empathic, uh -huh. compassionate, kind, lack of anger, lack of selfishness, lack of greed. And that's what these animals teach those who come in relation to them. And that's why when we meet humans that we feel are good people, are good people, to thank them for being good people and then to practice some of what they do naturally or what they have cultivated in themselves through self-mastery. Well, yeah, it's it's. I mean, life is precious, and it you know it's it's not just precious precious to humans. It's precious to everybody, <clears throat> and to not to not honor that, to not respect it, is is horrifying. I mean, you you can't think you're you're a wonderful person and you can walk on water if you're if you if you say nice things to people and then you mistreat other other species. It doesn't work right. that way. Right. And I, I've met so many people in this field that, that, you know, I'm a this and I'm a that, and and then you see them kick a dog. And, and oh. it's like, you know, it's not exactly what I'd call evolved. Um, and if the dog bit you, you probably deserved it. So, uh, you know, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of like I think that people are, are just so singular folks focused that they they don't understand that that especially in 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 the the spiritual field i i really don't i believe that so many people are striving to become um ascendant or transcendent or whatever and and they they are forgetting that that the practice of of moving and evolving is is one of love and it's expressing love, and it's not so much how many classes or courses you've taken; it's how you live your life. And exactly. I mean, you look at you look at somebody like Charlie Russell, and and for those of you that don't know about him, 
Um, Gay Bradshaw has written a great book called not only the, the Bears on the Cusp, but Talking with Bears. And he was a magical person. And, you know, he worked with the bears. And, and when he when he was um, farming, and he did farm for a while, and he bought his, his parents' farm, and he, he worked it before he, he took off on his bear quest. But he found that that if if he put stock who had died out for the bears they wouldn't uh they wouldn't attack his um the herds and it was that simple they were hungry give them food exactly. they're not going to exactly. you know and, and and it's 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 amazing i i there's a story someplace and i think it was in gay's book but i'm not sure where where a lion someplace had you know had eaten and it, it had eaten, I, I guess, an antelope that had that that had been sick and died, and, and the lion ate. And they got up and wandered through the herd, and the entire herd knew that that the lion wasn't going to attack attack them, you know, because he was he was full. And it, it's kind of like humanity, um, you know. We we have our basic needs, but you know, there's no reason to to kill. Or, or to mistreat, or to have heads on a wall, which freaks me out. Um, you know, you know it's, I, it, that doesn't prove anything. It, it proves that that you're more of an animal than those that are hanging on your wall, actually. Well, I, I think it shows people's disconnection from themselves. You know, we live in such a violent culture where violence is celebrated and honored. Um, and that's not new to this society. It's been going on for a long time. But until we decide that that is not to be revered and honored, that in fact we could be of service rather than destroying countries with bombs and bullets and those who are innocent on both sides. Um, you know, it's interesting because the buffalo, I think, are a beautiful example of majestic generosity. You know, you, oh, you'll yeah. often in the literature read that buffalo are stupid and buffalo mm-hmm. will run over the cliff. Well, buffalo are a good example of community consciousness. In the plains, they were really what made it possible for the settlers to actually travel. They would follow the buffalo trails. Unfortunately, then the trains also followed the buffalo trails when the Europeans came to settle, and the government used those trails by which to destroy and murder all the millions and millions of buffalo that had been our ecosystem um, preservers, because not only did they create water holes, which all animals benefited by, in the same way elephants do in in their ecosystems, they invigorated the soil and the spirit of people, because they show such majestic generosity for others. You know, when we corral them, you know, this notion that buffalo and cattle, and you have to destroy the buffalo in order to have cattle is completely fallacious. There's no fact for it at all. The only interbreeding that ever has happened between buffalo and cattle are when they're corralled by humans. It just doesn't happen, not naturally. Uh, there are bison herds um, in different parts of Nevada that are still purebred bison herds that have never been touched by cattle, even though cattle may be all around. You know, there's there's an effort, of course, by those who revere the buffalo to give them grazing land that's contiguous from state to state, like their old lineages gave them the the trails they followed and um i had a by the way the males cluster together when they wean the the males the females stay in the herd just like they do in the elephant 
and and the bear and the lion herds. The males have a job, which is to protect the herd. But in 2016, for those that don't know, and I thought that this was while I was working on this book, um, another synchronicity. Um, President Obama named the bison, the mammal of the United States, to join the eagle as the bird of the United States. And I thought of this as buffalo rising. And, and the Lakota, you know, have an important story of the, of the buffalo calf woman, who was a woman who became a buffalo and then turned back into a woman again. But she came to teach them all of their craft. And many of the teachers will say that without buffalo, we wouldn't have known how to eat, how to survive, how to have fire. Um, but there was one thing that happened when I and – I, and it's a great story to share. Can I share a story that happened when I was writing the book about buffalo? Sure. So somebody called me um, and said, look, there's a, there's a purebred horse that's up here for training, and it's missing. Well, you know, these horses are worth sometimes millions of dollars, and there's a great deal of liability to anybody that is stewarding them, especially when they're not their own. And so this woman said to me, yeah, the buffalo's missing and nobody can find them. And they had, like, the international rescue group out, and they had helicopters out, and it was all over the news. I didn't watch the news. I didn't follow the story. I just came into rapport, and for the sake of the book, I called this horse Coppertop. That wasn't really his name. But uh-huh. I came into rapport with him, and what he said was he kept looking for the barn. He, he was brought up from Florida where it was always warm to Maryland, which at the time was 16 degrees below, and then 16 degrees above. So he had come from like 80-degree weather to below freezing weather and wasn't used to it. But he he got out of his um, pen, I guess, because firstly when animals, I didn't know this at the time, when horses are first brought into a new group, they're isolated. They're kind of quarantined both in their stall and in the field to make sure they won't cause trouble among the herd, and I don't know if they do that specifically for male or female or both, but this was a male horse, and they did it to him. So he was really lonely and afraid. He didn't understand where his barn was with a certain colored roof. He didn't know where the filly was that he really liked. He didn't know where the groomer was back at home who he loved so much. And this was a horse that was a property horse, meaning used for races, used for dressage, used to compete. And some horses are fine about that kind of life career, and others are not. Well, this was a decidedly free-spirit running horse who told me what he loved more than anything was to love free through the woods, with or without a human on his back. So anyway, this was into, they called me on the third day or the evening of the second day that he had been missing, and they had all of these sort of, you know, instruments of rescue out, the helicopters, the people on horseback, everybody being notified from county to county. And I kept telling him, you know, go out into the area where you see humans. He would run away when he'd see a human because he was afraid what they might do to him. And I said, no, this new human that's taking care of you is well-intended and wishes you the best. And he talked to me about dressage. He hated it. He said it gave him a headache. He didn't like it at all. He, would, he could be a good racer. They'd let him, if he could race, you know, cross-country, he'd be a winner. Um, but anyway, I finally decided after four days had passed and I kept this communication like a mother checking on its baby every hour. I was like that with the yeah. horse. I'd check in with him every hour. Where are you? What are you doing? And he kept saying, where's my bucket? Where's my bucket? Meaning his green bucket of feed. He couldn't understand why he was out there and nobody was bringing him his bucket of feed. Well, he was lost. <laughs> and so finally yeah. 
I decided to do something I'd never done. I decided to call on the animals I'd spent four years working with, the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, and the buffalo. I chose the buffalo to help me find this horse. And when I called them, they came immediately. There's a, a, a herd of six who kind of are my guardians and introduced me to white spirit animals initially by coming to me in 2012 during a snowstorm around my white truck. They said, we're going to take you home. They were concerned I wouldn't get home safely. So anyway, I called this herd, and they came, and they literally put their heads together like in a huddle, like a football huddle. And then all yeah. of a sudden, I saw something I didn't expect. They took flight. They took flight. So within about, I called the person who had told me about the horse missing, and I said, look, I've called for help. And, they're, and I told them, I said, it's going to take five days, and on the fifth, because they were going to give up and just let the horse be wherever it was, lost, stolen, dead, or whatever. And I said, no, don't you give up until the end of the fifth day. Well, this was the morning of the fifth day. And within about a half hour, I kept saying to the horse, you know, find a human, go out towards the human. And then I said to the buffalo, get the light into the horse's eye so it sees you, like a signal, and then it will know yeah. that it's safe. I don't, I don't know. It just This is what spirit told me to do. So the, so the buffalo took flight. And literally within about 10 to 15 minutes of their taking flight, I get a text from this person who originally called me and said, Coppertop was just found. Wow. When you go to the native traditional literature and the mythology and the paintings, you will often see winged buffalo. And this was my experience. This is the graciousness of their spirit. This is why the natives revere them, love them. They are brother kin. They are teachers. They are elders. They are guardian of the prairie. And we in the United States should do everything we can to restore their native lands for their transmigration across states. And there are plenty of people who will offer it, but the United States government has decided only so many buffalo can live in Yellowstone, and beyond that we kill them. We create table food now out of buffalo. That was never intended to have buffalo meat as hamburgers. The buffalo gave up their bodies for the survival of the native people because that was their subsistence, but they used everything from the buffalo for their teepees, their bowls, their medicine, their arrows, whatever, whereas we're just Uh treating them now like a commodity, like we've treated cattle in a very abusive way of raising them, slaughtering them, putting them into factory farming and eating them, and that has to stage change because the buffalo are guardians of the spirit. Well, you know, it's it's to me. Um, I I have a friend who owns a, a farm and it's a rescue farm. She rescues um, everything from um, pot-bellied pigs to cows to turkeys to yeah, whatever. Yeah, and, there are more and more of those. And, mm-hmm. and basically, um, she what she has the most of are horses. And um, she's an animal communicator as well, and she does um, therapy sessions with the horses and autistic children. And the horses are able to communicate with the autistic children, and then the horse tells her what's going on with the autistic child. And, I mean, you know, when you have this kind of power, this kind of talent, this kind of love to, to not take advantage of it, to not, you know, I, I think that when people, I can understand if people, you know, just can't afford to feed the animals, but, but there are lots of places where you can 
take them, to put them so so that they can have a life that has love in it. I mean, I, they're just like us. They, you know, they respond to love unbelievably. And and um, and and when I see when you see the films of these autistic children getting on the back of one of these huge, I mean, they're big horses, and <clears throat> and the horse gently walking, knowing that the, the who's riding on it is challenged to some degree, and and to see them. To see that the children, especially um, where they were tight at first, become more and more and more relaxed until they are to the point where they're smiling. And, and you just know that there is a joy there, and it's because of the synchronicity with the horse. So, I mean, the, we, have, we have not taken advantage of, of one of the greatest healing tools out there, and that's the love of animals. You know, and and especially your your white spirit animals. I mean, I mean, I, well, you and, did you know, say that they. Go ahead. I, I was going to say it's interesting when you look at in sort of summary at some of the things these white spirit animals teach our cultures in the past and in the present. I mentioned that the white spirit wolf is guardian of the threshold and protects the dead as well as the newborn. It's telling us to do the same, meaning for us to see life and death as a continuum. And the white buffalo, who have always been sacred to the Lakota, they teach us prayer and peace. They're very um, balanced beings, and they work in herd. And that's what the elders got from them as well in the native traditions, because buffalo invigorate the soil and the spirit. You know, I mentioned earlier, bear urges us to heal with what grows from the earth. And when we bear children to bear witness and to prepare for, you know, long lives and long periods of self-sufficiency. And the elephant, like the Buddhists, to honor them, teaches us about compassionate action and resolution without violence. You know, it was interesting because the buffalo was the last animal I wrote about, but because I wrote in rounds, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have to wait four years to write about the buffalo. But I had an experience at the end of my four-year odyssey which is worth sharing, kind of like I was an ambassador for these Earth's great mammalian traditions. And this was my last, this is the closing part of my book, and it was my last experience. I dreamt, I'm going to just read it to you. I dreamt I was standing beside a single majestic male buffalo. He was a cherished elder friend, a tribal chief, representing the 60 million great buffalo that once grazed on the North American continent as preserver, nurturer, and life giver. We were on a mountaintop plateau overlooking an entire cosmopolitan city where their range used to be. Standing together with such a broad-scale view, he shared that, quote, when any one of us, human, animal, plant, or mineral, fulfills our purpose on earth, we experience the greatest love there is, unquote. And, you know, back to the Kabbalistic or Hasidic tradition in Judaism, it says we have an animal soul and a divine soul, and that, that our animal soul is the one we're always learning to refine, our natures, our tendencies towards anger or selfishness, um, that the animal itself is a perfected being. There's nothing that an animal has to do to perfect itself. If they're aberrations, it's generally because of their um, encounter with human abuse or human destruction of their ecosystem or that they can't breed, or whatever it is, something has interfered with their natural state of being because their natural state of being is perfect. 
and we are to learn that ability to perfect ourselves. And that's basically what Kabbalah and all of these many, you know, mystic traditions were meant to do, which is to lead to self-mastery, to be able to become master over one's own inclinations in order to arrive at divinity and to be the divine within. Um, I like the way the Dalai Lama says, you know, the spiritual is not separate from the daily. It's not like we go do these spiritual things, though the New Age made a lot of people think that. It's how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives. That's the spiritual path. Yeah, and I think the one thing that, that, that I got from reading the book was when you look at when you look at any animals, especially the white spirit animals, but but all of them, there is not anger, not jealousy, not war, not um, I, I mean, all of the qualities that that humanity seems to have developed, they seem to have not. They live in peace and tranquility within their group. Now, yeah, I'm sure that there there are moments when there are um, disputes of some sort, especially around self-regulation, time. right? Mm-hmm. But 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 they they live in such peaceful tranquility, and they take care of one another, and 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 it's in in all of these you know all of these um, groups of of different species. There isn't a one of them that has any of that kind of um, fear, and and the only fear they, you know, the only fear they have is of us, which is ridiculous. Which it shouldn't be. We should be I know, paying I think attention all of us to what like, is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because I commented on the accelerated species extinction as just an example of what we know to be a fact. We are destroying uh-huh. our planet step by step through our actions. And I, I have joked on air at times that it's, it's like you. I feel blown away half the time of why don't people understand how significant it is to have accelerated species extinction. It doesn't seem to be valued. And I've joked if we were to lose a football league one week and a soccer league the following or a baseball and basketball league after that, the entire world would be in an uproar, in an uproar. So I think in Kabbalah, the thing that I learned that I like so much about it is that it makes understanding human conduct very simple. We're either selfish or selfless, and generally it's a combination thereof. And they put it in terms of light, and this is going back hundreds and hundreds of years when it was codified in this way, that we're either emanating or receiving. You know, we're all light beings, so we're either emanating our light or receiving light from others. And the question is to come into a balance where we know the difference in our own conduct. You know, we know our intention and an action. Are we helping somebody because we're going to get credit for it, or are we helping somebody to help somebody? There's a very big difference in that kind of help. One is an emanation that's pure, and the other is already tainted by what am I getting. So when we can, I mean, I've said to children who have said, well, who do, how do I know who will be my friend at school? I sometimes work with little children. And I've said, well, just see if they're kind or they're selfish, meaning do they try to share or do they try to take? And when we break our own conduct, and that for younger people when they're choosing companions or places to go or mates, or is to really examine it in this very simple fashion. Is this person more selfless than selfish or more selfish than selfless? 
a person who is more selfish has a great deal of need that ultimately comes from some kind of woundedness of their own. So we can have compassion for people who do wrong or choose bad paths or create horrific murder or whatever, but we also have to understand that there are ways to raise people, and this is why back to the matriarchal lineage and the ethos of care. If children and their welfare were the center of our cultural disposition and our cultural um, expense and our cultural um, use of talent and science and education and medicine, we're about protecting them and encouraging you know, balanced, loving growth we would have a different world than we have today. But our children, as we know, are subject to predation and abuse at such an alarming scale today worldwide that this is, again, what the white spirit animals have said. We must restore this ethos of care. And it was interesting to me that the wolf, I haven't really shared all the beautiful teachings that are in white spirit animals, prophets of change, and I hope people will read the book or go to the website, white spirit animals, dot com is this the wolf revealed to me again through a series of dreams because i wrote this book through dreaming telepathically with the animals and they dreamt over a period of three or four nights and it was always in series like with with the wolf and with the elephant in this one with the wolf they showed me a truck that was empty that an african-american gentleman had intended to fill with food and take into the desert cities you know the cities that have food deserts is what they call them And he Uh couldn't decide if he should call it restoration or conservation or preservation. And then I realized on the third day of this dream that what the wolf was revealing was our task at hand, that the earth needs CPR. We need resuscitation. Uh We're in an emergency state of CPR, of conservation, preservation, and restoration, meaning from soil mineralization to perennial woods revitalization we really do have all the solutions we need at hand right now both physically and spiritually to help rebalance the earth and ourselves and that's why i wrote another book called the future of human consciousness but cpr that's what the root that's what the wolf said conservation preservation and restoration so their teachings are very simple and profound wisdom and when you hear them you know they're true because it it resonates within you as, oh, my God, that's the truth. Well, what what gets me is when you you take a look at all of the different species, and we're one of them, on the planet, and you see how so many other species are able to live in in peace and and camaraderie, and and you, you take a look at Homo sapiens, who have an arrogance and think they are above the others and they know so much better and, oh, look at them, they, they developed war. I mean, it, 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 was it a crapshoot to see who was going to survive the best and the most? I mean, it, it, in my mind, they all have it right. They have figured out a way to peacefully coexist, and yet we haven't. And why are humans so blind and arrogant that they haven't seen what's right in front of our faces and and instead of paying attention and taking advantage of the lessons that are there you know kind of being so arrogant that that we 
think that they're just quote-unquote animals and don't know any better. Well, we're all mammals. I mean, we're talking about humans are mammals and these are mammals. Um, yeah. And there, there is an, an intricacy between our relationships that does not seem valued by the entire civilization yet. That doesn't mean at some point we didn't have civilizations that lived in peace. You know, there's also these radical, more radical theories that this notion of killing and destruction came from off-planet intervention, that there were beings on other planets who had destroyed their planet and they were interested in our planet. I mean, there's all kinds of theories and all kinds of personal stories you can hear from abductees about some of the aliens wish us well and are trying to cultivate and elevate our consciousness. And there are others who use us and treat us like test tubes the same way we treat animals and humans. So, you know, I think the most important thing is to stay centered in being selfless. I, I don't know any other simple manner and method to do self-evaluation every day and to look at how we conduct ourselves in words, speech, and action. In Judaism, it's taught that in the afterlife, we put on the garment of our thought, speech, and action uh, so that no matter who we are, no matter what station of life we hold, no matter what economic strata we're in, no matter what race, religion, or nation we come from, in the afterlife, we all experience the same opportunity, which is to put on Uh the garment of our word, thought, speech, and action. So it tells us that mindful thought, speech, and action is our greatest tool for evolution. It's not to be a famous scientist. It's not to be, you know, the greatest athlete, to have the most money, to have the biggest house, to have the most children, whatever. It's to be the finest person. The finest person wins. Let's put it that way. You know those T-shirts that say, he who has the most wins? Well, it's not really true. The truth is, the kinder person wins. That's when they say the meek shall inherit the earth. They don't mean meek like weak. What they're talking about is a disposition of character, a refinement of character that is selfless. And that doesn't mean we don't do things, look, I'm not an ascended master, I'm not a teacher, I'm just a human being like everybody else doing my best to refine myself so that in my next life I can do even better. I can have more opportunity to be of greater service than this life. But service is the key word and humility. You know, the prophets of ancient Israel, in prophecy, it said that the cornerstone of prophecy, and it's really interesting, is the imagination, courage, and humility. Humility because it puts us in the right disposition to be of service, to listen, to hear what our inner voice and outer spirits are telling us. Courage because often what we see is so destabilizing and frightening like all of us today are being asked to have great courage with the realities that we face it was said that moses looked upon the future and he said that he was so relieved he lived in the time he did because the darkness that would come upon humanity was too awesome and that's the time period we're in when they say prophecy will come primarily through women and children and the third part of prophets and their night and their nature was the imagination. So it's humility, to have the right disposition to be of service to the ancients, to the elders, to the spirits, to souls on the other side, to your own inner voice, to your higher self. Courage, because we have to be able to face what we see, what we learn, and what we do. And not all prophecy is meant to be given to everybody. Sometimes it's meant for the prophet alone, for the person receiving it. And you have to use discernment, how much to share, when to share, what to share, if to share at all. 
And thirdly was imagination. And people always say, imaginations, though? Yeah, imagination. Imaging oh, yeah. is, is the great tool we've been given in mind because image is what calls matter to shape form, like a cookie cutter in, in wet dough. It will determine how the dough will dry. The imagination is that part of ourselves which has the ability to hold an image. And as Nikolai Tesla said, the greatest scientific inventor of the last century, he would turn it over, he'd turn it inside out, he'd get inside it, he'd get outside of it. Um, the imagination is our capacity to visualize something different from how it is or to see how it is as it is. So again, the three cornerstone qualities of the prophet, which we are all meant to be. We are all meant to be prophets, which means to speak for and with creator, with creation, with the divine, is courage to face what we see, humility for the proper disposition and, and sort of the leaving the ego to the side, and imagination, the ability to see what we see and then to envision it in the way we want it to be in terms of the benefit of all. So if we want to see the earth survive earth changes, we need to envision the earth changes as a benefit to our evolution. It's happening. It's going to happen. White spirit animals, according to all the elder traditions that revere them, only come to humanity during catastrophic change to help us with evolution and making right choices. And the right choices are generally those that are least selfish. That doesn't mean you don't do things to preserve your life, buy good food, have a nice home that, say, protect your family. But there's the family of humanity. There's the, uh -huh. there's the house of the earth. You know, there's the food of the ecosystem. So we're just asked to remember that we're not just local independent phenomena. We are universal beings having local experiences. You know, we are souls having a bodily experience in order to transform human consciousness. Because at some point, even in the Jewish tradition, it says we'll have a thousand years of peace and then a thousand years of no life on earth. And why or what or how is not all that important. What's important is that while we each have bodies, we have this ascended opportunity to shape matter with right intention and loving attention and cultural cultivation of our word, thought, and deed. And, and everybody has the capacity to do this. It's exactly. not something that... Just a few have. It's a it's a gift that we all had when we entered into this dimension, and and it's I, I think that's the one thing that so many people say. Well, I don't know how, and the reality is, you do know how. You go inside yourself, and you love yourself, and then you love others, and then you mm -hmm. share that. And and it's I think it's so simple. People just don't believe it. Right. We, we've made it all complicated, like it's something you have to pay $20,000 to achieve. The truth is it doesn't cost oh. anything. It, it no, means not that you become self-mastered. You do the right. good that you know you're capable. You know, the white spirit animals overall are just, they're part of a much larger ecology of spiritual beliefs, agriculture, ecosystem principles, and as I pointed out, astronomical correlations that stretch back millions of years and each being the epicenter of the location in which they exist 
are telling us that elder lore and mythological stories have given these animals potency in every age. You know, whether we meet them physically, whether you dream of them, whether we speak about them, and they're all part of the shamanic partnerships in ritual and healing with human allies. And it just tells mm-hmm. us that it doesn't matter what animal. It doesn't matter if it's the mouse or the rabbit or the dog or the cat or the parrot. It's, it's to stop the abuse, restore the reverence, and respect that all life deserves. And that's what we're being asked to do on Earth. As you pointed out, choose life. And that's what's taught in Judaism as well. Always choose life. So anything that can enhance life, that's the right choice. And as I show in my other book, The Future of Human Consciousness, we already have everything we need to restore the earth. It's what we're willing to stop doing and replace with those things we know how to do. Yeah, it's awareness and it's consciousness and it's intent. And, you know, it can be incorporated into every day. And and not only that, but but also prayer, meditation, um, you know, getting more deeply into your own consciousness so so that you grow as well. You know, we're here to to evolve. And exactly. and that mean and that means, you know, grow beyond what we came in as. And uh so many people <clears throat> just don't get the message. <laughs> but but you know, well, I they think they haven't that... been in an environment maybe that has given it to them in a way they can hear it. So that's why I like to say it's not complicated. You can evaluate your conduct and those of your children, grandchildren, friends, relatives, colleagues by are they emanating or receiving, are they selfish or selfless. Generally, it's a balance between the two. We hope that we lean towards the right. That's the right means chesed of loving kindness, the right hand in Judaism, but um, in the uh-huh. tree of life. But it's, it's, if we all lean towards kindness, we will make the right decision. If it's, you know, and 51% we, yeah, yeah. towards kindness and 49% not, that's already a benefit. So always lean towards kindness in your decision-making, and we'll all be on a better path, and the world will be a better place. Yeah, it's just that easy. And, and you know, I think doing shows like you do, like like doing a show like this, we're, we're you know, we're putting the word out there, and not charging anything for it. It's free. All you have to do is listen and then practice. Take it in, make it your own, and practice it. And um, I just noticed the clock. Um, <laughs> we're done. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to do this. Me too, Barbara. It's rare to be a guest, and I'm always honored when I'm given the opportunity to share some of my own thoughts and observations. Well, um, you know, it, it's um, you have a beautiful message. The book is a beautiful book, and you know, if if we can make people be aware and stretch themselves out, the world will be a better place. And um, you know, your words are beautiful. And the book, I, I have to tell everybody, the book is definitely inspired. It is it is not something that is just, you know, coldly written. It is definitely you can tell it's inspired, you can feel it's inspired, and once you feel that you know there's a message for each and every person on whatever level they are, on whatever they're working on, there's a message for everybody. Um the book yes, can't White Spirit Animals, it. Prophets of Change. Yeah, whitespiritanimals.com, dot com and um check out 
Zoe's show as well. Um, is that uh, ZoharaOnline.com? Yes, and 21st21st, CenturyRadio.com. Okay. Thank you again so much. I so appreciate your being here, and I will be in touch. Thank you, Barbara. God bless. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Look forward to talking to you on, let's see, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of next week. Have a good one. Stay well. And uh, lean towards love. It'll help everybody. Good night now. <laughs>